Hi, before we start today's episode, I wanted to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Some of you may well already listen, but if not, it's called Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio, and it's the number one most downloaded food podcast in America. Milk Street Radio travels the world to learn anything and everything that sparks their curiosity about food. So you'll hear stories about the world's strangest Michelin-starred meal, how some vineyards are renting falcons to protect their crops. You'll hear from some of your favorite food personalities, like the one and only Nigella Lawson. And you'll also learn how to make the perfect cup of coffee with YouTube star James Hoffman. There's a really great episode about food failures, which documents the time Gerber made baby food for adults. Another episode features TikTok forager Alexis Nicole Nelson, who explains why she traveled across state lines to make seaweed panna cotta. Plus, Christopher Kimball and Sarah Moulton speak with listeners and answer their questions about ingredients, techniques, and culinary mysteries. Like, why roasting a leg of lamb made one cooler's oven explode? (laughs) Ever wondered why your bread won't rise or your souffle falls flat? Well, Chris and Sarah have the answers. You'll also hear from a rotating cast of contributors. It's great. Take a lesson at 177milkstreet.com slash radio. Or just search your podcast app for Milk Street Radio. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. You know, one of the best parts of this job is definitely all of the amazing people that I get to meet, the stories that they have, the businesses they've built, the books they've written, and of course, the dishes that they love. It's so inspiring to me, and I really hope it is to you too. People doing such incredible things, and today's guest is no exception to that. Will is the founder of Deliveroo, one of the most successful companies we've seen in recent years, and getting to sit down and hear the story of how it came about and how his passion for food really does sit at the forefront of it all. How we define success is obviously down to the individual. I would say that Will is one of the most successful people I've probably met, um, but he's also one of the most humble, and I really enjoyed getting to meet him and hear all about his story, which I hope you enjoy too. The fact that he still does deliveries himself on his bike is just very cool to me. I think it says a lot about him as a person. So without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Will Shu. Will is the founder of Deliveroo, the food delivery company he launched in 2013 with his childhood friend, Greg Olowski. After coming up with the idea whilst working 100-hour weeks as an investment banker, the two friends seized on the opportunity to pair newly emerging technology with restaurants in order to enable people to order restaurant food straight to their door. A simple but genius idea that has seen Deliveroo grow to unicorn status and beyond, and for Will to be known as one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world. He describes himself as just a normal guy, whilst people who've worked with him and know him personally describe him as being gritty, calm and deliberate, and most of all, humble. 
This can be seen through the fact that Will can still regularly be found to be delivering food orders personally on his bike, not something many CEOs would be found doing at this stage of their business. In 2022, Deliveroo partnered with the Trussell Trust, and together they've provided 2 million meals and support to hundreds of thousands of people facing hunger in the UK. Welcome, Will. Thanks. Excited (laughs) to be here. So, Will, from everything I've read, you are truly passionate about food. But by your own admission, you say you aren't a great cook. Is that true? Um, yeah. Yeah, I'd say that's true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I can cook like a few things, I think, well, but like just like two or three. And do you think your passion for food has been integral to the success of delivery? Like, do you think if it had been someone else who set it up and they purely <sighs> saw the opportunity, but it didn't really matter the, to them that it was food, do you think it would have been as successful? I mean, there's a lot of different ways to business success. But for me, at least, I think just being very passionate about what you're doing. You get up in the morning, you're excited to go to work, you're excited to spread the message of it. And I think you might be able to fake it for a few years. I think it's very hard to fake it for 11 years. <laughs> Otherwise, it gets pretty tiring. So I, lo- I love what I do. And, and, you know, we've changed, I think, the way people consume food. We've changed the way merchants sell. We've changed the way people work. You know, so really proud of, you know, the job the team's done over the last 11 years. Yeah. And a passion for food has been integral to That's that. That's at my core. Very much at my core. I think people always ask, is this you know, a logistics company? Is this a food tech company? Is it, what is it, online marketplace? All of these things. All of those things are true, I would say. But I do fundamentally come back to, I started this business because there were great local independent restaurants that I wanted delivery from that weren't doing it. I always think about myself as the consumer. And and that's how I approach all of our problems at work. So, Will, at the end of this interview, we're going to cast your way to a desert island. How do you feel at the idea of that? Will you relish the quiet or will you miss the fast-paced CEO life? Um, depends what's on this island. Is there like a wing stop or something or (laughs) or is it just... No, it's a deserted desert island. So there's like, I'm, I'm there alone? Yeah. Okay, I can come back though or... No. Oh, I'm well, banished well, to the island. Banished. I don't know. Maybe if you can fashion a boat out of a tree. You know what? I'll try it out. I'll, yeah. see, I'll see how it goes. Yeah, I'm <laughs> not you... like a big outdoorsman, so. Okay. Are yeah. you good in your own company? Yeah. You know, my, my my favorite activity actually outside of eating and stuff. I actually like walking around by myself. Okay. So. Oh, and London's the best pedestrian city in the world, so That's I really true. enjoy that. Okay. I'll go with a friend sometimes, you know, but. Just for thinking space. Uh, exploration. Mm. I try not to think. Okay. I observe. So you grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, a place known for both Yale University and also, you say, the best pizza in the world. So let's talk about... Well, the best pizza in America. Okay. I don't know about the world. I've had a lot of great pizza in Italy, obviously. Okay. Best pizza in America. So let's talk about the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. The dish I identify most with my childhood. So I, my my parents um, are, are from Taiwan. Um, my ancestors are, are from northern China. And so as as a kid, I remember making dumplings with my mom, but also my grandmother. Oh. Um, and they're northern Chinese dumplings from the north northeast. Um, so they're you make um, you make what I don't know how to say it in English. Xin is, is how you'd say it in Chinese, like the the the, the mix of pork, shrimp, chives, other yeah. vegetables. Right. You make that. Um, and then you actually fold. You, my grandmother used to actually roll the um, the flour. Oh wow! To make the dumpling shells, right? And so I remember doing that with her, um, making the dumplings, and that is a sort of family activity you, you would do. 
And I was always really bad at it because I, I didn't have the patience to make it look nice. Yeah, it was hard. Yeah, and then for New Year's, that's what you would eat. My mom still makes them, although now she cheats a little. She she buys the pre-made uh, um, dumpling shells. Oh, yeah. yeah. Is that but cheating? I, I guess that's it's just not really cheating. Yeah, but, but that's something I, I have a pretty vivid memory of, of, of childhood. Is that something that you still make today? I can't. Um, making the, the actual filling is quite difficult. Actually, yeah. Making the dumplings themselves, it's it's okay. Um, it's not that hard. I, although I'm not good at it. My sister's much better than me. Yeah. My niece and nephew now know how to do it too. So. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I was going to ask, how much did the food of Taiwan like influence your childhood? Were you eating lots of that at home? Yeah, for sure. I don't know about Taiwan specifically because my mother, um, her parents, my grandparents, um, you know, fled to Taiwan in 1949 after the Civil War in China. And so... Taiwan's a very interesting place because, it, it, yes, there is a Taiwanese cuisine, but actually it attracted, uh, I guess, refugees or people that served in the military from all the different regions of China in 49. And so there's an incredibly diverse set of cuisines in Taiwan, mm. you know, whether that's sort of Islamic cuisine, Hunan, you know, all, all the different regions are represented in this small island, okay. which, which is pretty interesting. but. What I grew up eating was the traditional cuisine of the Northeast, Dongbei, okay. right? So that that's a lot of what I guess my mom would make, um, you know, growing up in Connecticut. Um, yeah, so I think I grew up eating mostly Chinese food, and 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 we would go to there. There's a neighborhood in Queens called Flushing um, in in New York, and you know, as a kid, we would spend a lot of time there, and I got to know a lot of. Um, you know, lot, lot, there, there, it used to kind of be a Taiwanese neighborhood. Now it's kind of different. So I ate a lot of food there. Got introduced to dim sum as well, which is Cantonese, which is very different than what I grew up eating with. But so learned a lot about Chinese food, I think, um, uh, with my parents growing up. Mm, so restaurants have always kind of been a big part of your life. I don't think we ever went to restaurants outside of maybe Chinese restaurants. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this the other day. I don't actually think I really knew how to use a fork and knife really well until later. Oh, really? Because, you know, we were at home. We're immigrants, right? So we would use chopsticks. We would, uh, yeah, just kind of eat that food. We would go to, like, McDonald's once in a while. Mm. But we would never go to a fancy fancy restaurant or anything like that. And then when I went to Taiwan, that was, like, amazing because I could go out to different restaurants and, you know, I watched my grandmother cook and, you know, go to the market with her and stuff like that. So we're going to talk about your first job in a minute and what you ended up yeah. doing. But what did you grow up wanting to be? Um, I was always interested in finance. I was interested in stocks and things like that. I always like had little businesses in retrospect that I was trying to run. Like what kind of thing? Well, I had this thing where it was actually ridiculous. So I used to play the piano. I wasn't very good, <laughs> but I thought I was good enough to teach other kids. And so I had this business of teaching piano. I must have been 12. My students were like nine. Okay. But like I had no idea what I was doing and I was very <laughs> stern with them. And so it didn't really work out. Um, you only have to be one step ahead of the people that you're teaching though. Isn't that what the mantra But my says? mom thought it was so funny because she was like, this is ridiculous. How are you qualified to teach anyone? I bet you earned pretty good money. Uh, well, briefly. But, and then, yeah, I would, I would, um, I always had some, some things going on, you know? Yeah. Like, just different ideas. So you know at school, they sometimes have those yearbooks where classmates vote for who's most likely to be president in the future or prom queen or that kind of thing. What would it have said in your yearbook? Do you think people would have predicted that you would have become a very successful entrepreneur? No, definitely not. 
I think. But I, I don't know. Like, it was such a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what, what, okay. what people would have thought, actually. Let's talk about the second Desert Island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. Look, I can only cook a few dishes, right? Okay. But actually, I'll tell you the dish that I learned how to make that I absolutely love to make. So it's a matriciana, the Roman, one of the four Roman pastas, mm-hmm. right? With bucatini. And so I had two Italian flatmates for three years in London. Mm. Uh, this guy, Diego, this other guy, Ronaldo. Diego was from uh, Avellino, and, and Ronaldo um, grew up in, in Brazil, but he, he's, his family's from the north. And so I lived with two Italian guys, and I, this was my first introduction to London. I moved here in 2004, didn't know anyone, ended up living with these two guys, and I learned how to cook um, Italian food from them. But the dish we were really obsessed with was was always um, the Samatrishana dish. And so the way I make it, the way I learned it from them, and this is how much I would make for one kilo of bucatini. Okay, my, my, one person serving. Well, I don't know if this is appropriate for the podcast, but we did have an eating competition about <laughs> who could consume 750 grams. But So, so one kilo of, of bucatini. Okay. So for that, I would use, so a little bit of olive oil. I would crush garlic, two cloves of garlic, medium heat, let it, you know, get golden. I would then put in two red onions, small red onions, chopped, minced. Then I would put in, um, at this point, 300 grams of guanciale, which is the uh, meat from the pig of cheek, Mm -hmm. right? Guanciale, not pancetta, guanciale. Yeah. And then I would put in three cans of tomatoes, 800 grams each, 2.4 kilos of tomatoes. Um, let that kind of simmer for a while. Let that go for 45 minutes or so. I might put in some chili flakes, mm. controversial. Okay. But, oh, is that controversial? Yeah. I mean, okay. by the way, this you can have amatrichana without tomato sauce, right? So it can be... Oh. Yeah. It, can it, you? There's, yeah. There's, oh. there's white amatrichana, right? Oh, so I didn't like know very, that. Kind of becomes almost like a grisha. And, and then 300 grams of pecorino romano. Grate it in later, and there you go. Yeah. This is a very heavy matriciana. I'm sure Italians listening are like, what is this guy talking about? But <laughs> but I actually love it. That, but, that's that's like one dish I'm very proud of that I can make pretty well. Yeah. And these guys taught me how to do it. Well, yeah. That's the great thing about being taught by Italians because yeah. you always have that as a backup. Like Italians taught me how to do it. I have a lot of Italian <laughs> friends in, 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 um, in London, and I, I love the country. We have a, a very big business in Italy as well, Amazing. Deliveroo. Oh, so, right. Yeah, so it's always fun to to go. We're the market leaders in Italy and it's kind of fun to to see everything. Yeah. So your first job was working on Wall Street and it was there that you got the opportunity to come and work in London for a year. Am I right in thinking at that point you'd never been to Europe before? Yeah. No, I'm not well-traveled at that point. Yeah. And so having never been to Europe, was it a place that you thought that much about when you were growing up? Did you have a desire to travel? Uh, I just wasn't exposed to it. Yeah. Um, we didn't really go on vacation or anything. So, Which I think is quite common in America, isn't it? I don't know. If you have money, I don't think it is. But, but we, you know, we were like just, you know, we were like immigrants, right? So that's what you do. So we would go to Taiwan to see relatives. That was always amazing. And that's a real privilege to go, you know, across the world. But outside of that, we didn't go anywhere. So I, I would say I did do one trip um, the year before I moved here. Uh, my childhood friend Greg, who I started delivery with, we we did a an amazing trip where we went to Berlin and Paris, and we took the train in between. And it was the summer of '03, and it was so hot. I remember it was like super, super hot, um, and we had such a great time. And then I had an opportunity to move here in '04, but I didn't know what London was. I had no clue what this place was. I didn't know anyone. 
you know, some some people at work literally were like, oh, why are you going? Like, isn't that place just where they eat fish and chips? And, you know, they, they had this Mary Poppins type thing in their head, which is ridiculous in 2004. But, but with like Dick Van Dyke's yeah. really awful English accent. Yeah, it's just like ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, so, so I came here. I didn't know anyone. Um, and loved it, and I just stuck around. Yeah, I think that's very brave. Like, do you think you are someone that takes risks? I'm a risk taker, yes, yes. Hmm. And what were your first impressions of London, age 24? Oh, I have such a funny story. So this guy, my boss was this guy called Paul. He actually lives in Notting Hill. He's my neighbor, hmm. and we hang out. He's a great guy. Paul and Brent, <laughs> these two guys. And I remember... It was raining. I just arrived June 2004. First of all, everyone kept talking about the summer of 03 for the, like, the next 10 years. I remember that. But in 04, we walked by a pub in Canary Wharf, and it was just full, and it was raining. So I asked Paul. I said, why, you know, why is everyone at the pub? And he looks at me. He goes, well, he's British. And he goes, well, it's raining. Of course they're at the pub, right? So I was like, oh, okay. That kind of makes sense. About a week later... <laughs> It was really sunny, and we walked by the pub again, and it's just everyone's at the pub, but they're standing outside. So I go to Paul. I go, why are they at the pub? I thought you said it's because it's raining. He goes, well, it's sunny, so of course you would go to the pub. So that, that was my first introduction to, to pubs in the UK. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? I loved it. I love pubs. Let's talk about the third desert island dish, and that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Can I list a few? Yeah. Definitely. All right. So New Haven's a city where there was a lot of Neapolitan immigrants, probably 1910, 1920. And they came with, with the Neapolitan dialect of that time. And still today, certain words are said um, in that Neapolitan dialect from the 1920s. So in New Haven, you can say pizza, but actually people say abits, which oh. is, you know, Neapolitan dialect, they drop the vowels um, at the end of words a lot. And so I, I didn't know this at the time. I only know this like now. Um, but that's what you would say, a beats. Um, and there, there are really three very famous New Haven pizza places. One's called Sally's, one's called Pepe's, and one's called Modern. They're all next to each other. New Haven's a small city. It's like 10 square miles, so you can just walk. And, and then there's, but there's a place called Ernie's um, near where I grew up um, in, in New Haven. Um, and just the, the, the New Haven pizza is, is distinctive for a couple of reasons. One, it's very thin. It's very crispy. It's almost burnt. Mm. We call it char. Uh, people from outside think it's burnt, but it's fantastic. The second one is the white clam. So there's um, no tomato sauce. Just it's a, it's a white pizza with freshly shucked clams, which is Ooh. a very New Haven thing. Yum. And that's, I rem that's like a thing of my youth. And there's like something like 300 pizza places in New Haven. So the quality is just super high. So that's kind of, you know, one dish that I identify with a lot because I grew up eating it, um, you know, we wouldn't go necessarily, but we'd, we'd go pick it up and, it, you know, everyone does it. If there are 300 pizza places, is there enough business for all of them? I think so, because a lot of a lot of people like pizza. Yeah, there. it's true. You know, it's a lot true. Of, there's a lot of Italian-Americans. I mean, pizza is the most popular dish in America. It's not yeah. just Italian-Americans, but New Haven is heavily Italian-American. Okay, that makes know. sense. I'd say another dish is the beef noodle soup in Taiwan. Ooh. That's the national dish of Taiwan, nyo mian. Um, and it's uh, it's just the most soothing, comforting dish you can have, I think. Chunks of beef, thick noodles, really beautiful broth. Um, I don't know what that that thing's called, uh, the spice they put in, but but it's it's incredible. It's world famous. Yeah, and I was just in Taiwan in, in, in December, 
Um, I had I went to one of the most famous ones there. So is it the kind of thing where you don't get the best one in the fanciest restaurants? It's knowing the totally. right place to go. Totally. I mean, yeah, like it's it's you can get it in a fancy restaurant, but I'm I'm a huge fan of like going to street food places and. And Taiwan's known for its night markets too, yes. which which is incredible. I'd highly recommend that. So the story goes that you actually had the idea for Deliveroo the very first day you moved to London. That is true. You were working in investment banking, working 100-hour weeks, and the perk of the job was the £15, 15 pounds. food allowance that you'd get each day. And the offering in the UK was so miserable at the time. Did that feel like a light bulb moment? Well, I had just come from New York, right? And in New York, we actually had a $25 allowance. Okay. Um, but the pound then, I think, was very strong. But in New York, you could order anything. You, you, it could be noodles. It could be a steak. It could be sushi. And New York's the food scene was just incredible, mm. especially that sort of lower price, mid-price tier. And then I move here, um, and the, you know, I'm working long hours, and the first day... Everyone's like, we're going to Tesco, and not that there's anything wrong with it. And I still, I always talk about this. Everyone got these microwave paella dishes. And I was just like, I was like, this is ridiculous because I didn't know much about London, but I was like, this place actually has amazing food. So why are we forced to walk in the Canary Wharf Mall to, to go to Tesco? Right? Yeah. And so I thought about it back then in 04. I didn't do anything about it until much later because I, I was focused on different things. But that's when the light bulb moment came on. This is a weird question, yeah. but do you think you would have launched the business if you'd been like a really proficient, passionate cook? Maybe not, because then I would have just cooked a yeah. lot, right? Yeah, um, but isn't that really interesting? Yeah, no, no, totally. I think, um, but you're a chef and you love going to restaurants, you love Deliveroo. So I do. Maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> but but I do enjoy cooking, by the way. Yeah. I, I'm just not good at it. Oh, that's interesting. So you do enjoy it. I, I but it enjoy does sound like you process. are good at it. No, I mean I can make an egg white omelet. I can make the amatrichana. Mm. And I know like how to make basic pastas because you, you make a sofrito and then you can kind of figure it out. I can make a carb-free fried rice with Oh um, with cauliflower. Cauliflower rice, um, broccoli rice, or um what what's that other uh thing called the um the Japanese um root Oh, the daikon. Uh, the daikon rice. They make something mm. like kind of from daikon. Oh, yeah. I think I, not, oh, not, yeah. No, I've had that. The right term is, but yeah. Yeah. That one, you got to really uh, be careful with that one, though. It's, yeah. It's very fibrous. <laughs> yeah. We're on to the fourth desert island dish, possibly the most important question yeah. of the day. Will, what is your favorite sandwich? My favorite sandwich, I have a pretty clear answer on this. Great. Um, I, I love the Vietnamese banh mi <gasps> sandwich. One of the best sandwiches in the world. And one of the best in the world. And the first time I really tried it was in London. So oh, really? At Q, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing K-E-U with the, the um, circumflex on the U. But um, that place in Old Street, mm. I tried it. And it, I, I like had to sign up the restaurant, right? This is back in 2012. And I was just like, this is the most delicious, fresh, light, incredible blend of flavors. So good. That, that is out on a freshly... Baked baguette. Yeah. Um, and then I, I, I had the privilege of going to Vietnam in 2018, and I, and I tried a bunch, and it was just, couldn't get enough of them. Like, how did it compare to the Q one? The Q one's just so good. It's amazing. Uh, it really is amazing. Mm. Um, and, and London actually has a number of good ones, like Bami Aha is really good. 
Um, that there are a few places that are really good. I think that's a really special sandwich because whilst you can make it at home, it's a labor of love. And so totally. it is the kind of thing that you go out to yeah. have. I think like, it's tough to make it home, right? Yeah, you need all so. that all that stuff. But but that is that is my favorite sandwich for sure, I would say. I also spent two years in business school in Philadelphia. The Philly cheesesteak is not a healthy sandwich, but it is incredibly tasty. <laughs> So something interesting is happening in the world of food in that I think online videos and cooking shows have never been more popular. And yet I think people are cooking less and less. Do you think Deliveroo has had a big part of that in that it's now so easy to order amazing restaurant food at home at any time? It's actually changed consumer behavior. I think possibly, by the way, we're not anti-cooking at all. Grocery is a big part of our, our business, right? And now you can order and get groceries to your house delivered in 20 minutes, right? Well, I already told you, I'm keeping you afloat. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I much appreciate it. But, but yeah, so I, I think that um, you're right, but we also want to figure out a way to encourage, you know, people um, um, to cook. And I, and I yeah. think by building better features in the app in regards to the recipes and things mm-hmm. like that, hopefully we can help encourage that. It is interesting though, like with the even delivery aside, like people just love watching cooking as love though a form it. of entertainment. It. I love it. Even knowing that they'll never yeah. make it. It's, I agree with you so much. There's this level of engagement and satisfaction mm. that comes from watching some of those TikTok stuff. Yeah. In the early days, you bootstrapped the business before you raised any money. Yeah. And it meant that you did all the jobs. You were yeah. the one getting the restaurant signed up. You were mm. spreading the word to the customers and you were also doing the deliveries. Do you think that's a really important part of starting a business? Yeah, and you you build a lot of empathy for for users that way. Because like if you're doing deliveries and you're using our app, you kind of get a real sense of what that's like. That's why a lot of people in our company we we do deliveries, right? We actually also own a very small restaurant in West Hampstead mm. on Finchley Road called Pizza Paradiso. Oh, it's 14 unit, you know, pizza place, and we sit there and we watch how delivery riders interact with the staff, how the staff interact with dine-in customers, and we try to build a great product on on the merchant side for them Mm. just by observing. You continue to do deliveries yourself now, which is very unusual for a CEO. Why is that in particular so important to you even now? I kind of just enjoy doing it to see what's happening. Do people recognize you? No, no, no one recognizes me. Really? No, they really don't. Some of the riders do, you know, because what I get from doing that is I can see what's happening at a restaurant. I can understand pain points for riders, for merchants, and for consumers. And it's fun at the end of the day. You get to go see a city. So I did did some in Birmingham, I don't know, a few months ago. I've, I've done them in Dubai recently. I um, think in that's Milan. very But cool. I mostly just do it just in Notting Hill, right? Okay. I get on my bike, I do them, and it's, you know, it's like fun. It's good exercise. I haven't done it in a little while, though. I should get out there. I think that's very cool. It's like your own version of the secret millionaire, you know, where they have like a company boss who goes behind the scenes and no one at the company knows that it's them. You can learn so much. <laughs> I mean, you, you can... You can sign up to be a writer and try it one day. Yeah. It's, it's, it's I, I think, pretty cool. So we're on to the fifth Desert Island dish. What's the dish you eat the most often? Um, so I love all kinds of food, but I'm pretty, for lunch, I'm, I try to eat very healthy. Okay. And I eat from an amazing salad place called the Salad Project. Oh, yes. Uh, there's a few of them, one in Oxford Circus, one in Bank, um, you know, one, one in Spitalfields Market, and they're opening up another one here. And they just have the freshest ingredients. Um, they have very creative salads as well. They actually let me create one with them. 
That's cool. It was cool. called the Root Hot to Handle. Um, and it's it's just really, because I love putting sriracha on my salad. I love chili peppers, stuff like that. Yeah. So um, what else was in it? Okay. So the Root Hot to Handle, for it's basically my salad. So it's kale, um, spinach, um, two portions of broccoli, uh, one portion of tomatoes, one slaw, um, some crunchy corn, some uh, chili peppers, um, two kinds of chicken. They have chimichurri and they have the soy garlic one. And then I put oh. in some prawns on top. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's heavy on the protein, <laughs> right? And, and and very little carbs. And then I put sriracha on it and I mix it. So that's it. That's the Ruha to handle. Um, that's what I eat basically every day. Um, sometimes I also order from Actis, another favorite salad place of mine. So I, I, I really kind of stick to the salad yeah. for lunch. That sounds that's, really good. It's great. It's healthy. You don't feel tired after. I'd love to just, you know, have a giant, you know, carbonara for lunch. But, you know, on holiday, I'll do that. But I yeah. think in the office, it's you can't be doing that. Yeah, unless you can afford to have a big nap in the afternoon. Yeah, and I can't. I can't. I'm not, I'm not really doing that. So. Do you remember the very first order that you received? I know exactly delivery? what it is. What was it? Um, it was... My friend, Aneta, she was living on uh, Sydney Street in Chelsea. It was from a restaurant called Rosso Pomodoro. And it was a margarita pizza that I delivered. She ordered, but I messed up the delivery and I put it sideways and I oh. delivered her a calzone <laughs> oh, no. instead of a pizza, effectively. <laughs> and she still reminds me to this day. And, oh, and then I ate it because she didn't want it. So that was the first that delivery. That is top-notch service. <laughs> yeah, she was like, I paid for it. You delivered it, you messed it up, and you ended up eating the food. <laughs> that so. sounds like a good business to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Something that really struck me when I was reading your story was the element of timing, because you had the idea in 2008, yeah. but this was before iPhones yeah. were really a thing. So to actually implement the idea was practically impossible. Well, the, 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 the idea was actually 04, oh. and I tried to do it in 08, mm. but the iPhone had just come out, there were no tablets, you know, cloud wasn't a thing yet. I mean, so so all of these preconditions yeah. hadn't been in place yet. Obviously, that's easy to say in retrospect. At the time, I was just like, this is really hard. Yeah, right? and you didn't know that it was ever going to be feasible. Yeah, but then in business school in 2010 to 12, I'm in Philly. You know, everyone's got an iPhone. Tablets are out. Offline, online's happening. And you see this movement. And you're like, wow, this is really possible now. So there's a brilliant podcast in America called How I Built This. Yeah, it's a great one. And one of the questions that they always ask, which I've kind of adopted because I think it's so interesting, is how much of your success do you attribute to hard work and determination and you personally? And how much do you attribute to luck or the stars aligning or timings or whatever you want to call it? How would you answer that question? I, I always think um, luck is incredibly um, important, but I think a lot of what we end up doing has a lot of preconditions. Now, mm. I do think being hardworking and being dedicated and being passionate lets you take advantage of your luck, yeah. right? But I, but I strongly believe that luck is important. A lot of people don't like to hear that, but I, but I, I, I do believe in it, and I feel really lucky. I've, I, I was lucky to have a great co-founder, lucky to have a, a great team, um, and I think lucky to start things, you know, at the right time. You can be lucky, though, and if you don't have passion and if you don't work hard, you don't push yourself really hard, you won't go anywhere either. So I definitely think it's yeah, a combination. Definitely. So we're on to the sixth desert island dish. What's your go-to dinner party dish? So I don't really do dinner parties, but I can tell you what I would order 
for people on Deliveroo. Okay, so if you're having people around, you... I do have people around, but I don't cook, so... Yeah, so you're having people around, you'd order something delicious. So we're going and... to go with my options from Notting Hill. So okay. I would... I love the the this Roman pizza place called Hungry Turtle <gasps> in Fulham. Very thin, very airy, a nice break from the Neapolitan. Um, they have this nice white pizza I really like. I love kimchi pancakes from Gogi, this Korean place. So good. So good. It's so good. I love Wingstop. I love the bo- uh, the garlic parmesan and original um, boneless wings and, and the tenders as well. <laughs> none of these dishes go together now that I think about it. Like, they don't have any congruence whatsoever. Yeah, I think if I went for supper at someone's house and they just said, I've ordered lots of delicious things, I'd be very happy. I'm obsessed with Malaysian food. Do you know that there are 25 Malaysian restaurants in Notting Hill? No. It's insane. I didn't know that. There's like 25 of them. Wow. Yeah. So Malaysian food I've gotten, you know, super into. Yeah. Um, Nazi Goreng, um, you know, uh, CKT, uh, Mutabarak. Like these are things I really enjoy. Mm. And actually where I live um, close to Queensway, a lot of good <gasps> Cantonese restaurants there, Manor and Kitchen, Four Seasons, Goldmine. Gold, yeah, Goldmine. All these places. Goldmine, so. the Marmite chicken. Oh, man. Why is it so delicious? I'm getting hungry just <laughs> Yeah, me about too. Why did we do this before lunch? <laughs> do you have time to have people around? Um, I hang out with my friends a lot and, and, and things like that. Yeah, a few people. I don't really do big dinner parties or anything. Yeah. I, I, I'm probably too uncivilized. Would you serve a pudding if you had people around? Uh, that means dessert, right? Yes. Yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not a sweets person. There's okay. only one I really enjoy. What I like it? a little fruit, but I love gelato. Mm. I, I don't actually like eating a ton of it, but I like, I love it. Right. And my favorite flavor is stracciatella. Um, and I was just in Bergamo in Italy, and apparently that's where it was invented. Oh. I have a few friends from Bergamo, so we went to the original place. It was oh, incredible. Wow. So on Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. I wondered, yeah. what is your most treasured cookbook? So I've got a really funny one for you. Okay. Um, so the cookbook I actually love is Jamie Oliver's Italy. Mm. Now, this is circa 04, the, the, that version. I don't know what it's like now. Yeah. And I... I, I as a reminder, I lived with two Italian guys, right? And they taught me how to make the Amatriciana. And we had this cookbook. And they would always be like, oh, Jamie Oliver, how would he know how to make Italian food? And then secretly they were using the <gasps> no. Jamie Oliver cookbook. <laughs> That's what I noticed. One day I looked over, this Ronaldo guy's just using the Jamie Oliver cookbook. And then I'm like, okay. Maybe it's a pretty good cookbook if (laughs) the Italians are using it, but like shamefully using it in the corner, trying to hide it from me. That's so good. Yeah. That's a goodie. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? Okay, so um, there is an answer I have, and it is also the first answer I gave you. Okay. Uh, There's a northern Chinese saying, which is basically when you get off your horse, you eat noodles. Okay. And we get back on your horse, meaning you're exiting something, you eat dumplings. Okay. And it's, it's kind of a tradition. Um, my mom tries to um, always do this when, I, when I'm in New York and I, or Connecticut and I go back to um, the UK after a visit. She always gives me dumplings on the way out. Okay. So and when she first sees you, she'll give you noodles. Yeah, she's a little less um, <laughs> stringent about that. But certainly <laughs> on the exit side, okay. <laughs> it, it usually is. We'll, we'll have a few dumplings together. That's so and, nice. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very common northern Chinese expression. Okay. Yeah. So they'd be dumplings made by your mom? 
doesn't have to be by my mom. You know, she's getting a bit lazy, you know, a lot of pre-made stuff now. Well, Talk to her let's about hope that. she doesn't listen to no, this. No, no, her dumplings are the best, though. They're actually the best. And yeah. would you have gelato before you go to the island? You know, dumplings and gelato, do they mix? <laughs> now, you know, whatever, right? Yes, Anything goes. I would, I would, yeah. I would, okay. I would. Can I also throw in a pizza? Can I yes, throw? of course. Yeah. This is your feast. Green fried chicken. Yep. Well, with that, we're going to send you off to the island. Thank you so much, Will. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. I appreciate your questions. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really does make such a difference. It boosts the show in the charts and that then enables other people to find out about it and means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, then come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And you can also sign up for the newsletter and also find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. <laughs>